You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. It's good to be here with you, and thank you for downloading the show, however it is that you found it. I'm glad that you're around. I've got a whole bunch of archives that you can listen to going back to about, I don't know, maybe 2006 or something. I'm not sure exactly how far back they go on the website, but you can also see videos that I've done on Nowhere to Run uh, 1984. That's K-N-O-W-W-H-E-R-E 1984 on YouTube. So, let's see here. We've got a lot of stuff to do today. One of the things I want to do today is talk about Planet X in super detail. Uh, I'll talk more about that in a minute. Also, I'm going to talk about conspiracy doctrine and, 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 and other doctrines and how they affect us and talk sort of um, uh, wax poetic a little bit about that for, for a while. And I also want to talk about... The new film project, Ancient Aliens Debunked, give some updates about that and some requests for some help about Ancient Aliens Debunked. So if you're interested in the, any of those things, stick around. But the first thing I'm going to do is talk at length here about Planet X. Uh, I just was invited to go speak about Planet X in detail uh, for someone else's film project about it. So I spent a little bit of time the last few weeks in my free time sort of brushing up on not just Planet X theories, but a particular person's Planet X theories, which uh, his name is Marshall Masters. And he's kind of like, you know, a big a big Planet X proponent. So I think I'm going to gear what I'm about to say as if you'd heard of Marshall Masters, uh, which may or may not be in, interesting to many of you. But what I, I think I want to pull double duty here. I, wa- I want to essentially hit cut uh, when I start talking about this and put it up somewhere as Marshall Masters re- refuted or something like that, um, even though it's just going to be me basically shooting from the hip, as it were. I've got some notes here of stuff that I that I want to say about his particular theory, and I'll explain what he believes about it as I go along. So first, I want to talk about Planet X. Okay, so Marshall Masters is is a guy that is right in the forefront of the Planet X theory. Um, He kind of has uh, a Zachariah Sitchin view of the whole thing. That is that he believes that it's called Nibiru, that the Sumerians talked about it, that Zachariah Sitchin's uh, translations of the Sumerian texts are more or less accurate. He differs from Zachariah Sitchin in that he thinks it's going to be here, you know, depending on when you ask him, and just after 2012, 2013, somewhere in the in the near future. Um, so that's kind of where he's at from it. With it, also he differs in Sitchin in that he thinks it is a binary star system, not a planet. So he thinks it's a brown or red dwarf star. So I'm just going to first talk about that issue with Sitchin. A lot of people believe in Nibiru or some version of that. It's really important that you know that the entire thing is as far as Sitchin goes he he really didn't we now know 
that the guy didn't even know the basics of Sumerian um, art, let alone the, let alone the language. Of course, uh, Michael Heiser and his excellent website SitchinIsWrong dot com goes through this much more meticulously than I'm about to here. But uh, just a few things on it. The, the main thing is from this what they call a cylinder seal, which is something that, uh, like a Sumerian carving. And it's got a picture of what looks like um, what, what Sitchin says is the, the sun and a bunch of planets around it. He essentially says that the Sumerians therefore knew that there were more planets than there actually are, one of which is Nibiru. Now, this thing is refuted pretty simply, and Heiser goes through it on his, uh, on his site. Um, the Sumerians, like, never would draw the sun, like a thing in the middle there that he says is the sun, i.e. the solar system. The Sumerians, this would constitute the first time in history that the Sumerians drew the sun like that. And it's not as though the Sumerians were like wishy-washy about how they depicted the sun. You got to remember, they worshipped the sun. The sun was Shamash. I mean, the sun appeared in almost every Sumerian relief, and it was depicted either one of two ways. One of which was um, uh, like a, a circle with some squiggly lines in it, and uh, very many examples in that. And another one is, uh, especially in the later times, towards the Assyrian times, um, and, and a little before that, is the solar disk. But uh, we could go through many different ways to show that that solar disk was referring to Shamash, the sun god. Uh, it's always in the same place right now. Um, anyway, we could go into detail, and Heiser goes into much more detail. I don't want to spend too much time on that because it's a radio show, and I could, I'm not really going to be showing you pictures here. But I w do want to mention a few things about Nibiru in, in terms of their text. You can now nobody could have done this when Sitchin was uh, writing his books in the 70s and 80s, but nowadays we can do a word search in the Sumerian for every instance of the word Nibiru. Uh, every like every tablet that is known, like millions of these tablets, right? It took 90 years, but what they did was they took every word that's ever been mentioned in every tablet and they cataloged it. Okay, so again, this is a massive project, the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary, CAD, uh, the Oriental Institute. You can find their, their, this online. Okay, so there's maybe, out of all these texts, of all the possible mentions of this word Nibiru, uh, I think it's something like 20 times is the thing mentioned? 20 times, okay? So we can look at every single instance that this word was used. Keep in mind, this was impossible at the time for for the common man to do this unless they were like at the university, you know, where the where these cards were. So Sitchin knew he could get away with lying about what Nibiru was because he knew nobody would look it up or couldn't look it up. But nowadays we can look it up. And there is not a single text that has Nibiru as a planet beyond Pluto. Um, there is not a single text in all those, word, those, those words that connects Nibiru with the Anunnaki. It never says, and the Anunnaki went to Nibiru, or Nibiru, and the, there's, there's just no association with the two. Complete, complete and total lie on the part of Sitchin. Um, the idea that Nibiru has, is cycling around the solar system every 3,600 years is a total fabrication. There's no other way around it. The guy just made it up. He knew you wouldn't be able to figure it out, so he made it up. In fact, the the way that they talk of Nibiru, it's it's there every year. I mean, it totally destroys Sitchin's thing. What they believed Nibiru was was around every year. And, and the reason I'm not being uh, exactly direct in what 
they believed it was is because there is a little bit of debate about what the Sumerians believed Nibiru was. The reason is is because almost every they refer to it pretty much th- for as three different things. Like, but to, I don't want to confuse you because you're going to think, oh, well, the confusion is is because it's a, a planet from the whatever whatever. But it, the confusion has nothing to do with it possibly being, you know, what Sitchin is saying. W- what I mean is that. Uh, almost every instance they call it Jupiter. It's unambiguously Marduk. It's Jupiter. But on one occasion, it calls it Mercury. And again, they, they knew what Mercury was. They knew they knew what Jupiter was, and that's what they were calling Nibiru. But then there's an occasion where it calls it uh, a star. And the way it speaks of it, it seems as if they're talking about a pole star, which, of course, if you know anything about precession, our, like our North Star, the reason it's the North Star is because of the way precession is right now. But it won't always be the North Star. It'll continually change. So uh, Heiser takes the view uh, that it is probably a, a pole star uh, because of the way they speak of it. And like I said, it's there every year. Um, but I don't want to go into too much detail because it's really just unnecessary. What you need to know is that it has nothing to do with 3,600 years. It has nothing to do with the Anunnaki. It never speaks of it as like a planet uh, that's that's beyond Pluto. I mean, at the very least, it's... It's what they knew to be Jupiter and what they knew to be Mercury. So it's a complete fabrication on that stuff. Um, And you can look at Heiser's paper on that for much more detailed information about what I just talked about. Okay, so the idea, of course, about Planet X, and this depends on who you're hearing it from, Marshall Masters says that, um, you know, we should be, he says by 2012, we're going to see two suns in the sky. So he thinks this is a binary star system. Now, one of the things that the guy always says is that, you know, this is a binary, that 80% of NASA believes, you know, 80, NASA believes 80% of the, the universe is binary stars. And that's true. I mean, that's like the one true thing the guy says is, yeah, there there are mostly binary star systems. Binary star systems are essentially two suns per solar system. Sometimes they have their own planets for each star and stuff like that, but there's lots of different variations. And yeah, there we are unique if we're not, but not that unique. Like 20% don't have binary star, star systems. So it's not like we're really unique. But yeah, we are a little unique if we don't have a binary star. But And, and, Na, and NASA and other scientists, they, they still haven't discounted the possibility that we're part of a binary star system. But the difference between everybody else in Marshall Masters or anybody else that, that kind of believes this way is that when they speak of us possibly being a binary star system, they're speaking of the it being anywhere from 25,000 to 95,000 AU, that's Earth to Sun distances, away from from us. I mean, that's like, I mean, an amazingly far distance from us. And, of course, it would have to be that far distance for it to go unnoticed. And that brings me to my next point. Um, and we'll talk about Nemesis more and what that means here in a second. My next point is, I, I talked a lot about this in the in the last episode, so I will only briefly touch on it, is lack of gravitational effects. Um, if there was a supermassive or even just kind of massive object in our solar system, even approaching our solar system, we would know it. Uh, I have a little bit more information about what I was talking about last time with amateur astronomers uh, and everybody else. They know the planets are where they're supposed to be because of the consistency of our solar system. 
Everything's doing what it's supposed to be doing in our solar system. That's why astronomy programs are perfectly accurate. That's why when NASA sends a satellite to intercept a comet and all this other stuff that it does, it seems like impossible. It all works because everything's doing what it's supposed to be doing, essentially. Planets are where they're supposed to be based on their mass and other you know, laws of planetary motion and stuff like that. Now, I talked a little bit about the history of that before, and I'll mention it briefly. But if, if a object comes in our solar system, it will mess that up. Even, a, even if it messed it up just a little bit, it would be immediately noticeable, not just to NASA. We don't have to wait on NASA for this. This would be something that every amateur astronomer in the field would tell you about the next day. If all of a sudden the astronomy programs are off or, you know, they're always looking for something called occultations that passes in front of an object. Like, you know, you're, 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 you can study a star or something else that's really far away um, a lot better if you wait till a planet gets in front of it. And then as that, that, that those moments when it starts to appear out from the backside of a planet, you can actually see stuff that you wouldn't normally have seen. So it's a really important part, a, a thing that amateur astronomers do. And none of that would, of course, work if the planets weren't where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be. So the minute that they're not where they're supposed to be, everybody would know it. And the minute that an object comes even kind of, kind of, sort of, kind of close to us, that won't be that way. Um, Mike Brown, the guy who um, was instrumental in demoting Pluto as a planet, uh, said the following, there are very good limits as to what you can hide at what distances in the solar system and not detect their gravity. You could put a Mars a few hundred AU, which is 10 times more distant than Neptune, 10 times bigger than our solar system, further out, and everything would be fine. That's the size of Mars. You could put Jupiter a few thousand AU, that's a thousand times the distance of Neptune, and again, you're safe. There might even be things out there that we might find. He goes on to say, it's not impossible that the sun has a brown dwarf companion, but to be hidden from us, it would have to be much, much further out than the Kuiper belt, maybe like a hundred times further. And at that distance, its effects on the earth are pretty much zero. Now, a brown dwarf star in our near solar system, there've been models of this. I think I talked about it last time uh, of this thing coming in our solar system, what it would do to our our planets and stuff like that. It's it's amazing. We wouldn't be saying stuff like, oh, you know, the 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 sun is getting hotter. We would be saying, hey, our calendars no longer work and everything is going crazy. And that's way that's before it even gets that close to us. Um so I just want to really really reiterate that that this thing would be extremely noticeable even if you take all the theory you know, anybody that has a planet X theory has to do this thing first. They have to explain why nobody can see it, why you can't hear, smell, taste, touch, why it's invisible to every known possible thing. And so they come up with all kinds of theories, some of which we'll talk about in a minute. But the main thing they can't and don't have an answer for is what, why can't we feel it? Because the gravity is is the the thing that would do it. Even if you gave them that it was somehow invisible. And of course, if this thing is as big as it's supposed to be, it would it would be occulting uh, stars behind it, even if it was black and had no light, which is altogether impossible anyway. But especially if it's a brown or red dwarf, yeah, they're dim at certain distances, but when they're close, they're like a star. So 
yeah, if this thing is closed, not only would it be bright, but I'll even give them, okay, let's just say it's not bright for some ridiculous reason. It would still be blocking out a whole bunch of stars if it was close. And so some people say, okay, well, no, that, here's one of their reasons for, for that. The ones that think about this will have to do something with it. And so they'll say, it's coming from the south, you see. All the planets are going around the the ecliptic, okay, which the ecliptic is a flat, if you just, the middle of the sun is the ecliptic and all our planets are basically not not exactly right on the ecliptic they're actually on various um but they're basically more or less on the same plane orbiting the sun except for pluto uh which has a slightly irregular orbit um and so they say no no it's not on the ecliptic it's going in a sense, in an up-down way, a perpendicular to the ecliptic, and so the so it's going to come at us from the from the south, from the South Pole, and we'll talk about the South Pole Telescope. Well, even if it was doing that, it's not going to escape the the gravity effects of the sun. I mean, that's like the, an elementary point of Newton's laws of gravity that a sphere will act at you know gravitationally act. All in all its directions, not just on the ecliptic. The reason why things, you know, orbit in the ecliptic ultimately is because the a center of an object's mass will will. I mean, that's they orbit to each other's center of their mass, and it's such a it's such a common thing that even if you look at galaxies, you'll notice that they are all in disks. Uh, even after, of course, all this time, they are orbiting in a disc-like shape. You know, you don't see a big ball of a galaxy there in a disc. That's because that's how things do that. When you say, oh, well, this thing is coming in an up-down way, and that's why you can't see it, number one, yeah, you'd be it's, it would still gravitationally mess with everything, and you'd still be able to see it. Just the same way that a lot of comets come in from that area. Um, like, okay, there's basically a big... There's a cloud of comets around us. They call the Oort cloud. And then there's another another band of comets called the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt's like about a light year past, you know, this or past the sun or something like that. And it's basically a big asteroid belt on the outer rim of our solar system. And it and it's orbiting orbiting the ecliptic. But then the Oort cloud is just basically like that, a big cloud around our solar system kind of thing. And it will they they will get kicked in and when they get kicked in, they come at us in all kinds of weird orbits and stuff like that. Uh, or, or weird trajectories, I guess you could say. So, so it's not like you know we don't know anything about those just because they're coming in from odd trajectories or whatnot. So, not only is that wrong, um, yeah, the idea that it's coming from the south is just a way for them to say, oh well, here's one reason you can't see it. But as, I think, as we talked about last time, that makes no sense either because spherical geometry is such that if you're standing on for example, the North Pole, uh, you're able to see half of the night sky. And you can see, let's, it's not exactly perfect, but if you're standing other places on the Earth, if you have a flat terrain, you can, throughout the course of the entire night, uh, you'll be able to see half of the night sky, more or less, give or take. So from the equator, over the course of a year, you're going to be able to see the entire south sky. But anywhere below the equator, of course, you're going to be able to see more and more and more. And there are lots of examples of this i mean it's well known the gemini telescopes that's what they boast about that they uh see the entire night sky collectively there's two telescopes one is like in 
Arizona or something and one's in Chile. And because they're in both the North and South hemispheres, they they can image the entire sky together collectively. And, and so you don't hide anything by putting it on the South Pole. The South Pole, of course, is the South Pole telescope is the big thing. You know, the government's trying to hide it from you. But if the government's trying to hide it from you, they have a really funny way of showing it because they built this massive, expensive telescope that is completely worthless, worthless for imaging dwarf stars or planets or stars or anything else. They built this great, ex extremely expensive telescope that doesn't even operate on infrared. It operates on... Uh, if it imaged a planet, it would look like it doesn't, it doesn't do planets. It doesn't do dwarf stars. We have dwarf star telescopes that are way unbelievably good, like WISE and, and IRAS, which we're talking about in a minute. But the South Pole conspiracy is ridiculous. That telescope operates on uh, millimeter and sub-millimeter and microwave uh, bands. These are These are huge bands you could measure on a ruler, and they are non-visible. The goal of the South Pole Telescope is to image galaxies in the mi cosmic, micro cosmic background radiation. It, it's to image things that are so distant. It, it, it's specifically tuned to do things that, uh, that by them being able to do those things, they make it impossible for them to be good at, at searching for planet x so it requires an ignorance of what is actually there in order to say it's all about planet x at the south pole telescope it's definitely not about planet x at the south pole telescope um so dwarf stars in general let me let me back up and tell you again the story of planet x this is important masters leaves this completely out you know he tells the story but he he, he forgets the most important part of the story um just real briefly, the story of Planet X is, is this, that uh, in the 1800s, after they started discovering these outer planets like Uranus and Neptune, they started to notice that according to you know Kepler's laws of planetary motion, if those laws were accurate, then there was something going not quite right with their orbits. Mathematically, it wasn't able to be explained according to Kepler's laws of planetary motion. So what they called that is perturbations. They were being perturbed, that is, gravitationally perturbed. And the hypothesis was true with Neptune. This is actually how they found Neptune, where they said, okay, Uranus is not doing right. It is therefore mathematically probable that it's being perturbed by something, and that something should be right about here. And they said, you know, would you go please look in this area of the sky, because I think something will be right there. And lo and behold, they found Neptune. So it really, it really bolstered the case of this idea of if you've got something a perturbation, you can do the math, and the math on perturbations, as you can guess, is ridiculously difficult. But people do it. And so after that, though, they found Neptune, and it, and it basically explained a lot of the, the things on Uranus. There were still some issues, um, but we later know that those issues were. Uh, let's say operator era, error, but uh, the issue is this. So there were still some problems after they found Neptune, and they hypothesized, they just, okay, it worked last time, let's do it again. It must be a massive planet out there, based on their calculations, whatever was still perturbing them would have to be a massive planet. It would have to be like a Jupiter-sized planet, and that would, according to their calculations, sort of solve the problem.
if there was such a planet. So the race was on to go find the planet. And uh, then they found Pluto. And they were happy at first because they thought it validated the theory. But as time went on, they realized that Pluto was not a very big planet and therefore could not account for the um, gravitational anomalies of Neptune and Uranus. So then Marshall Masters stops telling you the story. And no more story after that. For Marshall Masters, he'll essentially conclude like, and now nobody's yet found Planet X, but, uh, but you know, the search is still on. But in the real world, the search stopped in 1992. Because in 1992, Voyager 2 went past Neptune on its way out to the outer solar system. It saw Neptune and saw something interesting about it, that it was actually just a little bit smaller than they had previously thought. Um, so it was actually, I think it was 0.05. I think I said 0.5 last time, a little bit smaller than that. So everybody in the scientific community realized if it was smaller, I don't want to say everybody in the scientific community, speaking absolutes there, as as the data came came in, they realized that this actually meant if it was smaller than if you do the math, there wasn't a problem anymore. There was no need for this hypothesized supermassive object dubbed Planet X at that time. Um, so after 1992, the scientific world stopped searching for Planet X in that regard. Okay, Planet X has since become named as like a placeholder for the next thing that we find or whatever, and that's a little bit different. But but as far as explaining the gravitational anomalies that existed on, on Neptune and and Uranus. Nobody's looking for that anymore. But Marshall Masters is. And he doesn't mention the Voyager 2 thing, which is really disingenuous because that's like extremely common knowledge. Uh, and I'm certain that he knows about it. I mean, how could you not know about it if you're claiming to be so so informed about this? Okay, so moving on to the Nemesis theory. You know, you know, you may have heard a lot about Nemesis. And I've, I've often wanted to dig into Nemesis to see exactly what was going on with it. And I was surprised to see how kind of silly the idea was. I mean, essentially, the the guy who proposed that Nemesis, that is to say, a potential star companion of our star, a binary star, which again is not a weird thing. Scientists are open to the possibility, but it would have to be extremely far out in order to, to make sense of why we... Uh, anyway... I'll get into that as I talk about this. So uh, the reason why it was it was um, proposed is because of a perceived cycle of mass extinctions in the geological record, which seemed to occur at, at more often at intervals of about 26 million years. So... There was this belief that, according to the geological record, every 26 million years, there not thousand, we're not talking about the precession here. We're talking about a totally different periodicity of the 26 million year cycle that was believed to be an extinction event every 26 million years. Now, first of all, there that was even just one of many things that, that essentially would would try to solve that problem. The idea was that Okay, so every 26 million years, maybe something orbits uh, in a certain way in the Oort cloud. Remember that when I talked about about that thing that was on the outside of um, uh, of our of our 
uh, solar system, maybe it's kicking in some comets from that Oort cloud every 26 million years, and they're coming in, and that's why we're getting uh, hit by that more often. Now, since then, and that would be just one of many reasons, right? If, if if such a thing was true, and that was widely even admitted by the people that proposed this theory, the guy that proposed it, and, the, and proponents later proponents of it. So anyway, the evidence now is that such a 26 million year period does not exist, and the belief that it did exist was based on, I think, what they call statistical artifacts or something like that. Uh, I'll read what it says here in 2001. Corin Baylor Jones did an analysis of the crater. Excuse me, in 2011, Corin Baylor Jones did an analysis of the craters on the surface of the Earth and reached the conclusion that the earlier findings of simple periodic patterns implying periodic comet showers dislodged by hypothetical Nemesis star, Nemesis star, to be a st to be statistical artifacts, and found that the crater record shows no evidence for Nemesis. However, uh, there was a study a year before that one that says this. Uh, that's by Merlo and Bambach, found strong evidence in the fossil record confirming the extinction event peri periodicity uh, originally claimed by Ropp and, and Sepkowski in 84, but at a higher confidence level and over a time period nearly twice as long. Okay, so now the people in 2010, before the ones that said there was no periodicity, that was statistical artifacts, before that, there, the people said, okay, yeah, there is some kind of periodicity, but it's twice as long. So that would indicate uh, twice as long orbit. You know, one of the one of the big things that people say about Nemesis, why it can't be true, like the scientists say, okay, like this is what the guy came under heat because he said it was it was a ninety five thousand AU, which is one point light years away. Anything in an orbit of that far away from the sun is so close to the breakaway. Uh, the, what do they call it? the breakaway distance or something like that of the sun's gravity? I mean, you're just so close. It's such a weak gravity at that point that you're just so close to being out of there. So um, they said nothing at that could could have a regular orbit because it's so such a weak gravitational field at that distance. The orbit would be so weak it could never be consistent. Certainly not 3,600 years, uh, as, as Sitchin said. But anything that far away, especially like Nibiru would be so vulnerable to every sort of influence because of such a weak, uh, a weak thing. It would be want to say that it was a regular orbit is I'm getting a little off topic here. Um, but what I want to say about this is that what, what most people have discounted Nemesis now, uh, is because of wise wise is a second generation infrared telescope that specifically searches for brown and red dwarf stars and if there was anything in our solar system or close it would have found it now the jury's still out with wise because it still needs a little bit of time to collect some data they take multiple pic i mean they, this thing literally takes pictures of the entire sky like the entire known infrared sky so there's a lot of data to go through uh, but what we do know is there's nothing big close but they still don't rule out the possibility that there's a brown dwarf companion star, but it would be one of those really distant ones. I mean, there's nothing close, but maybe it's one of the distant ones, but they won't know for sure until the other data is compared. Essentially, they need to have two pieces to compare with to see which one's moving. Uh, but to to make a long story short, there's nothing close. Yes, there's still a possibility, and if they are, WISE will fi find it. But uh, uh, And WISE is the second generation of something... Uh, an infrared telescope, uh, one of which is a really big problem for Marshall Masters theory, IRAS, 
and 83. Let's talk about IRAS. I don't know how he never mentions this, but he actually just says that that Planet X was spotted, and, and this is all over his website, and it's every in every one of his videos. You know, he mentioned something about, oh yeah, IRAS. You know, the was reported in the Washington Times that they found Planet X and stuff like that. And that is such a plane on the ignorance of of people about that. And we're going to talk about the crux of his theory here as we get get into it, the solar stuff, because that's where it all falls apart for him. But this idea of IRAS taking a picture of Planet X and there being a big cover-up about it is so wrong. What happened is in, in 80, when IRAS was the first thing that NASA put out there that was going to do infrared, so it was going to see stuff that nobody had ever seen before. Nobody really did, knew, knew what, what to expect. You know, what's, what's going to happen when you look at the sky in infrared? Nobody knew until the data came back from IRAS. When IRAS came back with the data and they looked at it, there was these big anomalies. Of course, everything is an anomaly at that point, right? You're looking at this, these things, and in a press conference, they asked these scientists, what could these anomalies be? And the guy said something, paraphrasing, like, I don't know. We don't know yet. It could be anything from a tenth planet to a distant galaxy, something very, very similar to that. The Washington Post, however, ran with the 10th planet idea, forgot about the distant galaxy part of it, and said, scientists say 10th planet found, and here's the picture or whatever. So Washington and other, other news agencies picked it up. So that's where it gives it validity. The Washington Post reported that they took a picture of it based on this guy's saying this at a press conference. I mean, he's, he's tried to, as much as possible, say what had happened, you know, but people won't listen to the guy uh, that want this to be Planet X. But here's the issue. You can now go and check. Look, you, you can see the, the, the follow-up data. They took much better pictures of this area with much better equipment, uh, much more detailed pictures of just that to figure out what the anomalies were. And they found out it was a new object. Uh, not a new object. It's a um, what they call a... Uh, what do they call, call it? An ultra-luminous infrared galaxy. These are galaxies. You, you've probably seen these pictures of like these these things giving birth to stars. You know, they're really amazingly b beautiful pictures and stuff like that. If a galaxy is birthing a bunch of stars, it gives off this ridiculous amount of infrared, and so it's dubbed an ultra luminous infrared galaxy. Of course, you, you it's new because it's infrared, so it's you know one of these things that we now know exist as a result of looking at the sky in infrared. That's what it is. Everybody knows it. Nobody thinks that that's a planet. Nobody thinks it's a planet except for Marshall Masters, I should correct. Uh, and, and it's, it's to, 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 to say that, I, you know, if somebody comes up and says, oh, yeah, Washington Post reported on it and they took a picture of it, then you just tell them that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, so the crux of the matter with Masters is this. He, 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 basically says planet x is is really close now i mean two suns are going to appear in the sky next year this thing is on its way he thinks it's going to come between i think mars and jupiter so we're talking inner solar system object he says it's the size of jupiter which in itself is a blunder because no binary star is going to be under 15 jupiter sizes i mean that's the that's the smallest by you know that's the smallest brown or red dwarf that we've ever heard of um 
there is a belief that they can get as low as 11 to 13 size, times the size of Jupiter because it needs to be at least that size to be able to produce the things that happen in brown wart and red dwarf stars in terms of the internal uh, fusion and stuff like that. So the idea that it's the size of Jupiter is ridiculous, but I'll just go ahead and whatever, give it to him. It's, let's say he knows somehow that it's the size of Jupiter, whatever. Um, even if it's the size of Jupiter, we'll just go with that and say... Um, that he believes that this thing is going to come between uh, the Earth and, excuse me, Mars and Jupiter. If it's that close and it came at a regular interval, you know, it's going to do more than, I mean, the asteroid belt and the planets are so stable if it makes no sense if every 3,600 years an object came that close. The asteroid belt would not be stable. The asteroid belt is ridiculously stable. Uh, the planets are ridiculously stable and will continue to be so. They wouldn't be like this. We would be continually in flux if every 3,600 years something just barreled into our galaxy like that. We're not looking at the results of that. Uh, and you could just do models about that. But my my point is not about that. My point is, is that the guy says that all this is happening and the thing that he calls perturbations, how the only effects is, as far as Masters seems to suggest, that, that we're going to get from this is that a planet coming that close will mess with the sun somehow, a mechanism he fails to describe ever, which is unfortunate because it's like the crux of his entire, everything that he says is about the sun. Somehow he's invented a me mechanism in which uh, this object coming this close does things to the sun, causes more coronal mass ejections, solar flares, solar heat, all these things. The sun goes crazy and it's by virtue of the sun going crazy that it messes with the Earth and the other planets and causes earthquakes and causes all this stuff is a result of the sun doing it to us for the most part. Pole shifts and everything is because planet X comes close to the sun, makes the sun do stuff to us. Are you with me? So, And so his he calls these perturbations, which is ridiculous. The idea that he is, he you know, it in this context, when you talk about perturbations, you talk about that the gravitational effects that this Jupiter-sized object would have on the asteroid belt and the surrounding planets and everything else. But he, but in light of any of that, which would absolutely crush his theory, he's got to come up with a new version of perturbations. His version is the idea that perturbations means the weather on Mars is getting different. And so essentially Mars, if you will, is being perturbed because the sun is getting hotter and it's making the polar ice caps melt. And I could get into a lot of the debates about whether that's actually happening on Mars or anywhere else or whatever, or I guess not a debate of whether it's happening, but what it's a result of their local weather or, you know, solar heat is a whole nother situation, but I don't want to go there because I don't really know a whole lot about it, but I can, I can debunk it a different way just as easily. Um, and this comes down to an important, the, the thing that really kills Marshall Masters idea is solar cycle 24. We are in solar cycle 24 right now. Solar cycles are every 11 years. The sun basically goes up and down every 11 years, giving higher degrees of sunspots, coronal mass ejections, solar flares. And at the peak of a, of a solar cycle, you know, obviously it gives the highest number. And then, of course, it's got a, every 11 years, it's also got a low peak. So, and, and these things have been studied meticulously since like at least 100 years. Most of these graphs go back to like the 1880s. And you're thinking, how can we judge solar flares for, for, for 100 years? Surely we didn't have the ability to, to look at solar flares for 100 years. 
Well, the reason they're able to accurately know what this was doing for these hundreds of years was because uh, you can easily see what's known as sunspots. Okay, it's just what it sounds like. That's spots on the sun. They appear in different places on the sun and, and different things like that. But if you look at a graph of, say, sunspots and coronal mass ejections and solar flares and solar heat all next to each other, it would be doing essentially the exact same thing. As sunspots go, so do coronal mass ejections. So do solar flares. So does solar heat. Okay, so by, and it's so well known that just by counting the number of these stupid spots, you can actually tell all these other things too. So it's so widely agreed upon now that uh, it's just included in these graphs. We have these going back to, as I said, the 1800s. Now, here's the here's the crux of the matter. What happened was, in about about three years ago, we started this solar cycle, and there were two groups of people that were making predictions about this solar cycle. To make a long story short, one was predicting that the sun had a long memory. Okay, that would that, I don't know exactly what they mean by that, but when you read about this, that's what they talk about it, and one. One group believed that the sun had a short-term memory, okay, whatever. Now, the two different camps were predicting two different things for the solar cycles. Like, NASA was a part of the long memory camp, and they were predicting that this solar cycle was going to be the worst one in 400 years, okay? They were predicting a 400-year huge solar cycle, the biggest ever, you know. And I guarantee you, Planet Xers and everybody else have been and reading and, and, and fueling their fires with these articles from NASA, and which is not, you know, not exactly the first time that they've fueled a, a planet or, or a 2012 theories. I think that there's something going on with NASA and that, but that's a whole other issue. Um, so NASA says it's going to be the worst one in 400 years. And that's before, that's three years ago. That's when Marshall Master was writing his book, The Planet X uh, Forecast. He, you know, um, everything that he says is completely dependent upon right now in 2012, 2013. We, we need to be, in order for Ma Ma Marshall Masters to be even slightly right, in order for him not to be a complete and total quack, he needs the sun to be going crazy right now. Because if it's not, then he's completely wrong. So, is the sun going crazy right now? Not only is the sun not going crazy right now, what happened was none of this panned out. Basically, the, the crowd that said it was going to be a low n number won the day. Uh, once you're about three years into it, it's almost a given exactly what it's going to do. But it almost doesn't even matter what it does from here on out because we are so low right now that... If you look at a graph of this, where we are right now is unbelievably low. I mean, we're going to be lower in our highest point. I mean, even if you give it the benefit of doubt where it's going to be kind of high this year, it's still going to be the lowest in 100 years. Um, we are so far below the average. It's not, it's not ridiculously below the average. I don't want you to say, oh, well, maybe it's, maybe it's causing the reverse. Well, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's just below average. It's not ridiculously below average or whatever, but it's just, it's below the average. Um, and 
that you can see this in every graph, whether it's solar heat or, or coronal mass ejections or whatever. You know, people are always saying, look at the solar flare, it's proof of this. You know, there's always going to be solar flare, flares, big ones, small ones, whatever. Um, and if you're watching them consistently and you say, wow, that was a big one today. Yeah, but if you were watching it in one of these, you know, big solar cycles, you would be having a much more exciting time. I mean, we're, yeah, there's solar flares all the time. There's big ones, small ones, whatever. But there was a lot more in a lot different years. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, we're looking at, at nothing of what was supposed to happen. Now the camps, like NASA included, I mean, it's a high solar ma uh, maximum this year. Nobody does. because And actually, they learned a lot about, I've actually seen the presentations of them sort of admitting this. Okay, we learned a lot this time. We know now, now a little bit more how to predict this stuff and whatever. And they, they learned something really specific about uh, this solar cycle. So they say um, that's important uh, and that will keep them from making the same mistake that they made. I'm not sure it was a mistake, but whatever. So to make a long story short, the camps that think this is going to be a, a big solar cycle are gone. And the data is, is as crystal clear as you can get. This is if, if planet X is supposed to be messing with the sun and the sun's supposed to be melting the caps and stuff like Marshall Masters always says, look at all the, the, the planets warming up. If the planets are warming up, if the planets are doing all this stuff because of the sun, then the question I have to ask Mr. Masters is, by what mechanism are they warming up? Because total solar irritants uh, is way down. Like the heat of the sun is way, way, way down. Like it was so much higher in the, I mean, ridiculously much higher in the 2000s, 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, the 50s. Solar, solar irritants was easily double what it is right now. Okay, and so in, in sunspots and everything else, and if there's more coronal mass ejections in the in the last 50 years by half than there is right now, and there's more solar flares, at least half more than there is right now, and the sun was that much hotter, what secret way is the sun now doing all this stuff that supposedly Planet X is causing? Is it a mystery new way in which the sun is causing all these things to happen? Because it's certainly not because it's getting hotter. It's certainly not because it's got more solar flares or sunspots or anything. So I'm open. Tell me exactly how this is happening. Actually, I'm not open now that I, now that I think about that. I'm, I'm very much not. Um, okay, so... I guess a few different things here. Mentioned that. Mentioned IRS, Planet X, Kuiper Belt Cliff. There's something. The Kuiper Belt Cliff uh, is something that uh, Masters says exists, and it does exist. It basically is. We talked about the Oort cloud, of course, which is kind of a dome, and then there's the Kuiper Belt Cliff, which well, the Kuiper Belt is kind of flat, like the asteroid belt, farther out than Pluto, um, and and basically, there's a big kind of what they call a cliff, a place where there isn't any rocks kind of in it. It's kind of like a gap where there aren't any uh, objects. And people have proposed number of number of reasons for that. And um, Masters says, of course, it's because of Planet X. But there's lots of problems with that. First of all, the thing... It, I mean, people believe that it could be a, a, a massive object that's caused the Kuiper Belt cliff, essentially, you know, pushing stuff out of its way as it goes around the the thing, and it could be a massive object. But when they say massive, they're talking about an object anywhere from thirty to seventy times the size of Earth. 
this is a small object if it is one um not the size of jupiter not anything else that's not what what we're looking at with the kuiper belt cliff so if he thinks it's a brown dwarf star or some his jupiter sized object whatever that would be certainly not a brown dwarf star but whatever you would want to say um it's not that but a bigger problem with that is the internal contradiction there that he has because I thought this thing was supposed to come from the south. You know, it's going to be on the perpendicular. It's not It's not on the ecliptic, you know. That's how we explain the fact that we can't see it. Um, so so you can't have it both ways. Either, either it's orbiting up and down or it's causing the Kuiper Belt cliff. You can't, you can't have a, such an obvious internal contradiction there. Now, he, of course, brings us all into biblical prophecy, even though he's, from what I can gather, extremely contemptuous of... Uh, of Christianity and the Bible and everything, but he uses it for his own purposes. And he says some very wrong things. Essentially, his premise is that the writers of various prophecies, of which the Bible being one, he names a number of others, which I may or may not talk about, uh, such, well, I'll just say like the, the his, what he calls the Colburn Bible, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, which he says, oh, they were all essentially trying to tell the world that this cyclical event comes every so often and we need to be prepared for it. And he says that what is happening, which is described in the book of Revelation, for instance, is the same event that happened with what the, the Noah's flood and with Pharaoh's, the, plague, the ten plagues of Pharaoh in Egypt. He said all three of those things are a result of Nibiru's various passages three times. Problems all over the place. Number one is that if the Bible was written for the purpose of, or at least this section of the Bible or whatever, was written for the purpose of warning us about the cyclical event that supposedly happens, it really went the wrong way about it. Because what the Bible does is it goes out of its way to say what is happening in the book of Revelation is like no other time that has ever been, no nor ever shall be. It is distinctly different. Let me give you a few examples. Everything in the sea dies. Everything in not just the salt water, but the fresh water dies. All vegetation is destroyed. Okay, this is this is like un unprecedented to say the least i could go on to describe many more cataclysmic unprecedented events but it in addition to the severity of what's being described in the book of revelation and comparing that to say the 10 plagues of egypt you know frogs and stuff like that egypt would have known a little bit more about this if like every piece of vegetation in the world perished and everything in the sea died they'd be recording that a little bit different than a bunch of frogs showed up and then you know the firstborn sons died and stuff like that it's just not the same thing there's just no comparison he goes through you know his book trying to make these comparisons but it's like completely trying to fit square pegs into round holes it just doesn't work in addition to the Bible's consistent reports that the day of the Lord, that is the eschatological judgment, not only is uh, distinct, I mean, versus saying this is not going to be like anything else that your fathers have been through. You've got internal contradictions of it saying stuff like about Noah, never again will I judge the world like that. I mean, you've got 
places within the Bible itself that make you know that the day of the Lord is not going to be like any other time. But even more than that, in its, in its speaking of the day of the Lord and what's happening in the book of Revelation, it goes to some length to say that this is a specified thing that happens to a certain amount of people, to certain people, I should say, that is the wicked. The day of the Lord is just the destruction of the wicked, the day in which they get what they deserve. Okay? The day of the Lord, that's its function. Um Almost no matter what people's view on the rapture is or whatever, they essentially agree on this point that what happens in the day of the Lord with the, with God's wrath somehow, some way, it is it is not for the righteous. And the reason it's not just one verse, you know, uh, of you know, uh, God has not appointed us to wrath. It's like every mention of the day of the Lord. You know, this is not going to be for you. Um, what I want to say about that. Anyway, the the, well, the reverse of that, the Planet X version, is that this thing undiscriminately comes into our solar system and destroys whoever is not in a bunker or whoever is not in an ark. Uh, and, you know, as he calls these arcs, these things where the elites will escape and stuff like that. So, and then his version of how everybody gets enlightened, because the guy's a new ager, he channels, you know, these beings and stuff. Uh, which is finally why I figured I couldn't figure him out for a long time. I was like, is this guy like just a charlatan? Because I mean, he's clearly saying things that are untrue. And he, I guess I thought he was just trying to make money. But then, but then I realized at some point listening to a radio interview and he was talking about how he got all this information from the spirit world. And then it hit me. He's like, Oh, this guy just is a complete believer that the entities that he's talking to have his best interests in mind. And, uh, I mean, even the occultists would laugh at such a notion that one has such blind devotion to, uh, to anything that they get told and not realizing that these things are much smarter than us have agendas. And, uh, he would be, he would be in a very small group of people that, uh, were not wary about that kind of thing or had no mechanism for testing them. And especially if they lie to him about scientific stuff, which clearly has happened, uh, nevertheless, that's sort of where he's coming from. Anyway, the idea he says we're going to get enlightened by is by virtue of us getting rid of our paradigm. Okay, ever heard that one before? Once you go through this great cataclysm, you'll realize that Christianity was a bunch of hooey, and you'll become an ancient astronaut theorist. That's what he says in his book, almost verbatim, except he doesn't call it an ancient astronaut theory. Um, so once you become an ancient astronaut theorist and get rid of Christianity, according to him... That's going to cause an evolution. Well, it didn't work for Giorgio Tsoukalos. I, I don't think uh, it's going to work for other people either, even if Planet X is going on at the same time. And, if, of course, because that that doesn't work, he has to do what I call throwing the kitchen sink at, at, at it when in regard to these, these people that... I, I love it when a New Ager tries to tell you why you're going to get evolved because that's always where the sticky part is. Well, it's going to be because... The galactic alignment, which, of course, happened three million years ago and isn't going to happen for another 30 million years. So that's a lie. Demons lied to me on that one, says, uh, well, they wouldn't say it, but David Wilcock, of course, promotes it. And others. The So what I'm saying is they never say, or the photon belt or something, you know, which, of course, is channeled information, which is totally bogus and and uh, obviously can't work. You can see my David Icke debunked movie for more on debunking of the photon belt, or you can just Google it. Um, anyway, so he says, 
okay, so it's not just that uh, that you have to get rid of your Christianity and become an ancient astronaut theorist, and that's how you become evolved, although he says that. He says it's also because you go through this great cataclysm, and that changes you. And because the cataclysm is so great, and here is where he brings in Velikovsky and essentially the idea of evolutionary, you become evolved when cataclysms happen. Now, this is kind of comparing apples and oranges, even though it doesn't really sound like it. If you say that cataclysm will turn you into an, an enlightened being, and as evidence for that, you s submit that uh, evolution in the past or whatever was a result of catastrophic events happening and, and, and animals adapting to their environment after that. Yeah, those those animals probably had to go, you know, this is assuming that worldview or whatever, those animals, let's say a cataclysm happened and the food sources change, so they got to develop new skills or different beaks or whatever to to get those that that those food items since there's a scarcer thing because of the cataclysm. Yeah, that that would that would accelerate uh adaption to the environment. But you're still a million miles away from that changes them into super beings with cool powers and now they're much more evolved in their mind and changing to you know, that's a different a different thing. Uh, then, of course, he pulls the uh, old Alice Bailey with the sun rays are going to do it. Uh, that's sort of where he goes mostly is the sun's going to get real cool and it's going to change us into enlightened beings and stuff like that. So, and again, I'd have to say if that's happening via Planet X, when is that going to happen again? It's certainly not anytime soon. Certainly not this solar cycle, we'll say. Um, anyways, so that's that's Marshall Masters debunked there for you. In a in a nutshell, the other things that I wanted to talk about now. Uh, well, we've been an hour here. Um, should I continue? Should this just be a long podcast? Okay, long podcast it is. Let me go ahead and talk about what ancient aliens debunked real quick. Um, and I want to ask for people's help if they're if they're interested in helping with this. Um, so I'm hoping to get the movie done by the end of the month, and I'm really close. And it's going to be awesome, and I'm really thinking it's just going to be a really powerful thing. But I, but I need some help with uh, something to do with the script. I've written out the script in Microsoft Word and everything, but what I need is somebody to I need to make MP3s of all the segments that I've done that are finished edited editing right now, and give them to you. And you need to have Microsoft Word open and listen to the to the to the to the movie, and transcribe the parts that I have that I didn't write. So for example, I've got clips of, of say ancient aliens debunk says a five second clip of them saying something. And then I begin talking, which is all written out. So I need you to transcribe, excuse me, the, the five seconds of ancient aliens saying whatever it says. And there's also clips of Michael Heiser in there. So you may need to write out what he says. So what I need you to do is, is, is in Microsoft word, transcribed the parts that are not transcribed yet that's basically what i need somebody to do um i'd like for you to have you know some some experience with microsoft word if at all possible i would really like it if somebody also had a pretty solid knowledge of wordpress but i but i might just ask this is a separate thing is for somebody to be able to um, put the scripts on WordPress. If you do know WordPress, you know that it's kind of a format issue to get 
Microsoft Word and onto WordPress to work right. So if that's something that sounds like something you could do, or if you have the time to do, I certainly would love to hear from you. You can email me at nowhere to run 1984 at gmail.com. And uh, even if you can't do the WordPress thing, but you do have the time to do the, the, the Microsoft Word transcribing thing. Also, I would need just a little bit of tweaking on the grammar, maybe not grammar, but the punctuation and stuff. It's pretty close. I mean, I did an okay job with my own proofreading, but I'm by no means a, uh, a great uh, proofreader. But if that's a skill set that you have, I would really appreciate your help. Uh, I'm really trying to make the companion website a, a place where people can go to deprogram themselves from this terrible, terrible, awful idea of the uh, ancient astronaut theory. Um, the other thing that I need to ask somebody about that's out there is if anybody has access to some stock images, not necessarily stock video, although that would be great, but um, my Shutterstock account, it's this thing that you can its a get stock images for, for you know, uh, pictures and stuff like that that you can use with royalty-free. And at Shutterstock, they give you a monthly subscription. And to be honest, I, I'm, I'm one more day... And, and my monthly subscription is gone, and I still have more editing to do, at least for another 10 days or so. Um, and I just can't afford doing another month there at Shutterstock. And so if anybody has access to um, a lot of stock images, I could really, really use it for the next 10 days. Um, also on that, on that exact same kind of thing, my Camtasia, which is a screen capturing software, but it's ridiculously expensive, uh, I've been doing a 30-day trial with that. My 30-day trial, I think, ends in one day or two days. Um, if anybody knows or has an extra license for Camtasia or whatever, I don't know what happens if you, if you have, if you buy it, if they give you an extra license, licenses or whatever. I would really appreciate that because it's just, um, it, it would really, really help me out as far as that goes. So that those things really, really help me. I think I'm really close to the finish line with this thing, but... Um, but I do need just that extra help. There's going to be some other issues like that as we really get going in the in the promotion of the website and stuff like that that I'll need some help with. But uh, anyway, moving on to the final segment, which is about... I was going to talk about conspiracy doctrine. I was going to mention a lot of the different things. And I still might do this at one one time or another and just sort of say the the things about conspiracy doctrine that uh that I believe you know sort of a westminster westminster statement of faith about conspiracy doctrine uh and I thought about that and I'd actually been taking some notes I was like okay I'll say this and this is one of those issues and just kind of come up with this big thing but as I was uh doing this thing here about planet x last uh this week I really kind of thought about it a little bit, and I was thinking, you know, we really are just this niche group and people that believe the kind of stuff that we believe, you know, that Nephilim exists and uh, that uh, that there's a coming deception uh, and it'll probably be UFO-related. And, you know, this, the, even the idea that there's an Antichrist coming is a pretty niche group. I mean, evangelicals... Uh, or Protestants alone. I mean, not many Protestants are you know, premillennial even. So the issue I'm trying to say is we're, we're already a niche group, us conspiracy Christians. And 
it's important that we heed the pastoral epistles warnings paul in the in the pastoral epistles who says let's not contend about the small things in fact avoid them like the plague but when it comes to heresy and stuff like that he wants us to contend like never before it's our job to contend against those things that are drawing people away from the faith but let's not we got too much time on our hands if we're if we're doing too much about that and con- contending with conspiracy doctrine but you know there's one thing though that 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 it does kind of go into when when conspiracy doctrine often has a lot to do with the bible then sometimes you get into regular doctrine issues and that's of course what paul was talking about primarily is is those kinds of issues about genealogies and stuff as he put it in and, and different contentious ideas that are basically unimportant he said have nothing to do with those knowing that they generate strife well nothing to do is nothing to do so um i'm going to try to try to heed those warnings but uh i think we have just too much time on our hands we it's like a, a, a culture that has uh you know you, you don't see in a, in a culture like the new testament you don't see them striving much and it's not because they were so much better than we are it was because they were being murdered tortured to death that uh, kept them from dealing with smaller issues and that's kind of what i want to close on is this idea that's really been burdening me lately uh and i think more and more that i may do something big about it um but i don't know yet i say that all the time about everything is this idea, and I, I noticed this. I was kind of at a, at a mega church the other day. Was, I actually like the, the mega church my dad goes to. You know, it's 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 not it's not a bad place, and you know, I'm glad that 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 he goes to a place that's solid and doctrine and conservative or whatever. But you know, it's still mega churchy. Um, and I, it wasn't anything that they said there or, or anything that they did wrong. It's just it's something hit me while I was there in in the in the midst of the worship, which was great worship and everything. But. Uh, well, how to start this? Okay, so you've read a lot of those verses that, uh, and I talk all the time about them. But, you know, the count the cost verses that Jesus says stuff about, like, you know, if you're going to follow me, you need to count the cost, and and all these kinds of things that he says that are that are really um, difficult to hear. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it, lose it, but whoever Loses his life for my sake for find it. These kinds of things. Um, Luke 14, whoever does not bear his cross. Uh, let's see. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he goes on to say more about this idea of counting the cost. But, of course, he's speaking of him needing to be number one in our life. He needs. We need to decide in our minds that he needs to be the number one thing in our life. He, and that change of mind, that repentance, is is what we need in our lives. That the fact that he really is God, that we really aren't, and that we really are going to serve him. And by putting him first in our life, if you really do that, it will change your life. But I think often, certainly in my case, before I was saved, though I gave lip service to the idea. I had many things in my life that were not uh, number one in my life. But uh, if you ask me, of course, anybody's going to say, oh, yeah, Jesus, number one, babe. He's the guy. But but in, in, in actual practice, he certainly wasn't number one in my life. My point here is that this this thing that Jesus says in these count the cost verses, and they're all over the place. 
he always says, you know, hey, Lord, what, 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 uh, let me go first bury my father. And, you know, he says, you know, that whoever has their hand to the plow and looks back or, you know, it's not fit to follow me or let the dead bury their dead, but you come preach the gospel. These kinds of ideas are consistently said. They're just like a genre of New Testament uh, stuff is people asking to follow Jesus and Jesus saying the son of man has no place to lay his head and all these other things. Well, Jesus wants us to consider the fellowship of him, the discipleship of him. And one of the things that I think he wants us to consider in this count the cost verse, and he says this in almost every occasion, this odd phrase, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me. And of course, this is pre-cross. We have to, we can understand this in both ways. We could understand it in either way that, that he's saying, okay, this is like, so as I will one day be crucified, you also have to crucify yourself. And, or you could also be referring to the concept of the Roman crucifixion, which is how they would have understood it in that immediate context is that you need to um, bear your cross. You need to bear your instrument of death and torture. And I think either way, essentially, gets the exact same point I'm trying to make here across, which is that Jesus, if we're if we're going to f- follow him, he wants us to con- to know that for whoever is you're going to lose your life for his sake, he wants you to go into it eyes wide open that you may be tortured to death for him. He almost wants you to. It seems to me, and this is where I'm going to kind of put the point here, is that he he. It seems to me that he wants you to realize that following him very well will will end up in your being tortured to death. And I think that the count the cost verses are important in that idea because that's like the worst thing that can happen to us. You know, I, I think a lot of us are like me, you know, uh, go ahead, you know, I'm ready to cut my head off at the end times. I'm ready for it. You can do it or whatever. But when it really comes down to it, there's that, you know, when the saws or the torches or the whatever it is actually start doing whatever they're doing, that's a whole nother ball game. When the pain starts and your own body start, that that's a big deal. Now, of course, the, the, what happened on the cross is so painful. I mean, you know, people talk about it all the time. But uh, I've I just recently realized more about what the reason they do those lashes in his back was really important to the crucifixion process. That's why it was a consistent thing. I mean, it it really, because he had to lean back and all this other stuff on the cross, it just made it almost unbearable to be on the cross and the way that he was on the cross with his back being like that. But anyway, um, I think when you look at the early church of the New Testament period, um, where we have accurate records of, of what they were doing and, and everything, there is this constant theme that they were all being killed for what they believed. That's just, that was the norm in the early church. I mean, from the very beginning, you know, Stephen to uh, Paul himself in the new Testament sort of closes out the book of acts there or John. uh, I think John probably, some believe he was martyred there at at the end of the day that Pat, Pat Moss, but, but, but he may have been the only one that wasn't, but certainly all the other believers of Thessalonica and, Hebrews and could go on and on, Galatians and so on. They were being killed for what they believed. Colossians, I mean, everybody was getting killed for what they believed. And not just killed, but but tortured, you know. Um, Paul being beat several times. Anyway, you know what I mean. 
And they write letters saying, hey, good job. You guys are doing well. The only time they say anything negative about this, them dying for what they believe is when they write to the Hebrews and says, you guys haven't even resisted to the point of shedding of blood, and yet you're apostatizing. So they, he was a negative thing for, for them. You guys haven't even resisted to the shedding of blood, as if that's the beginning point. And they were apostatizing just on the threat of their blood being shed. Uh, they were They were going back to Judaism. So... My point is, that's the culture in which we came from. That's why you didn't see a lot of division in there, because they don't have time for division. When your home group getting busted means that you get tortured to death. So, where am I going with this? Is back to the back to the megachurch and worldview. Your if your worldview is such that you're constantly being prepared for the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario I would submit is being tortured to death. Um, and I think that's what Jesus essentially prepares us for in these count the cost things. If that's the worst case scenario, and, 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 and I've been thinking about that for as long as I can remember. I mean, I don't dwell on it or anything, but you know, it's something that I've considered. That's the worst case scenario. And everything except for being tortured to death is a bonus for me. And it changes your outlook. It changes your worldview. It changes how you serve the Lord. It changes everything. So my worldview is such that I am not expecting this to end in a sense of me going to church uh, and, and, and acquiring wealth and living the American dream, so to speak, even the Christian American dream, which is a slightly less uh whatever version and then getting taken away before the antichrist shows up now most of you know my eschatological beliefs are, are very close to pre-tribulationalism i certainly respect it. all my favorite pre preachers are pre-tribulational but i do believe that we'll see the antichrist and we'll see his persecution i think we're promised it i think second thessalonians 2 all the all of the discourse etc revelation chapter 6 i could go on i have a video about it if you want to but 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 here's my point is if indeed that's a great possibility and we're actually prepared for it because Jesus told us to be prepared for it if we're going to follow him, that changes your outlook, not just in your daily walk, but also in terms of what's going to happen. If you're convinced that it's going to be American dream and then one day at church you're going to get raptured out of there before anything even slightly negative happens even if you kind of pay lip service to the idea oh it's going to get pretty bad but then we're going to get raptured out before it gets really even you know bad at all if that's your worldview that not only affects how you live and, I, and i'm not bashing this idea but it, it has been something i've been thinking about more that that would change things it would change not just if if you had no no reason to count the cost in that regard you have no reason to uh, do a lot of things, which is completely new to Christianity. Christianity was born in the fire of persecution and death. It was it was raised in that same fires in the early church and even into well into the Middle Ages and really even recently with Stalin and Hitler and everything. That's what we have been doing. So this is a new thing in which we've decided that there is nothing like that to look forward to. And I think... That's what makes these these warnings of the end times apostasy so scary to me, because it says that essentially it's because of the 
the persecution of Antichrist is described by Jesus as a time like no other time. It's described as, you know, a time where parents will give up their children and they're going to think they're doing God's service when they give you up to be executed. Just this weird thing when everybody gives everybody else to be executed because they're Christians. You know, brothers are going to give up brothers. They're going to be thinking they're doing a good thing. Whatever deception causes people to do that, I don't know. But it's going to make those people that are not prepared for that really second guess this idea of, especially if there's a valid alternative. You know, well, yeah, actually, you could avoid this persecution and death if you if you do this. Now, I don't. I want to clarify here. I think that those that the Lord has are gonna, they're gonna be okay. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter what you believe eschatologically. Um, you're gonna continue to, you're gonna follow the Lord. You're not gonna, whatever. You know what I'm saying? This is not gonna be dependent upon that. But I would say that. The apostasy described in Scripture is a direct result of those people who are not willing to pay that price. And the apostasy is them saving their lives, saving their skin. They deny Christ openly. They choose the other route, which I'm sure is sugar-coated to seem like it's not that bad, and it's just like, you know, this, and it's actually probably the right way. I I mean, now that I think about it, it actually probably is the right way, because if you put it like that, I mean, there's going to be a genius thing uh, that, that a good... Christian evangelical can say, see it as a valid alternative and they get to save their life, you know? And so it's dangerous, not just in the eschatological sense, but I think that the worldview is also dangerous in terms of your Christian growth. And I think I've seen this uh, in a lot of occasions in my life is this idea. And I've mentioned it here is this idea of the worst case scenario being considering the worst case scenario in, in the various aspects of your life. Um, Financially and everything else, it really helps you to to be happy with anything except for the worst case scenario. Um, to having walked through the worst case scenario in your head really helps you walk in faith in some instances too. Um, I think that for me, you know, I think this is an issue with a lot of people that do full time ministry is that they kind of think of it like I have to do something to get donations uh, to keep this ministry going to keep me whatever keep me supported or whatnot and that that's valid but i i can i can feel where where that where those things those feelings come from having having been doing that but i think somebody in the ministry especially having considered the worst case scenario okay what if what if i think it comes from one idea particularly is 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 if god is done with using you in that way you got to be okay with that and I think one of the ways that he tells you that he's done is that there's no longer any support uh, for doing it. And if you have to drum up support in some kind of ridiculous ways, then it's probably more you doing it than God doing it anyway. So my my thought is, well, okay, then if that's the case, the worst case scenario in this situation is, you know, I find out God's not in it one month, two months, and all of a sudden there there's no more... You, you know, I start to realize, okay, there's no, there's no way to support myself here. Then that worst case scenario means that I go get a job and uh, start working the job. And, and even if, if Connie and I for a time have to move in with my mom or something like that or whatever, I, I've walked through that or even something wor- worse, you know, okay, we know what, and she's okay with that. You know, what, whatever, if that's how this ends up, 
then that's how it ends up and we'll, we'll we'll get back we'll bounce back or whatever but my point is is especially if people in the ministry if they if they can't consider that as as you know that's that's a potential possibility and they haven't gone there and, and been okay with that if it has has to happen then it really kind of puts them in a in a difficult and stressful situation when uh when times are tough or whatever but uh, if you've already been there and you know you know what to do when it you know when it happens um Anyway, that, that's really not the best example. I guess my point is in this whole thing is the worst case scenario in terms of your counting the cost and your fellowship of the Lord is what's important here. You, he he encourages us to count the cost. He encourages us to think about this seriously. You know, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You're going to be killed for this. Take up your cross. Uh, all the different things that he says. Um, and consider that and see... If you go into it like that, then it's a whole other ball game. Then you really do are in this for whatever trials and tribulations. As, as Paul says, having food and clothing, therewith be content. I mean, that's the, everything except everything above that line is gravy. And the good thing about God is very often he wants you to be well above that line. And he wants you to be thankful for those blessings that he's given you. But if you really take that to heart, if if food and clothing is what you're content with, and you know that the the, the storms are going to come, the the cancers and the deaths and the and the and the bankruptcies and all that stuff is going to come, then your ship isn't as shaken as it was would be if you believed that those things could never come to you. Um, and I think that if you embrace sufferings, there's a podcast I did called Embracing Suffering. And the Christian worldview is the only one that can technically embrace suffering as, uh, and so many scriptures and and to 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 study about that concept of embracing suffering and what it does for the Christian. Not everybody uh, is benefited by suffering. Some people are made bitter and terrible by it, but a Christian can be conformed to the image of Christ. Romans eight twenty eight by it, and that nothing is come to you that wasn't Father filtered. He knew what he was doing. He knew what you could handle. A lot of times he gives things that nobody else could handle. Uh, and sometimes we judge what we have on that scale. Like, this this is terrible. This this would break everybody around you. Yeah, but it won't break you. In fact, it would do exactly its intended work with you if you let it, if you embrace it. If you go through it with him, not not rejecting him or, or blaming him. He's, he's much smarter than that. Uh, and he knows us too well. Uh, he loves to hear from us. Um, it It's described as a, a sweet aroma to him our prayers he wants to be real with you he wants you he wants you to be real with him rather he wants he knows everything anyway just just talk to him as if you were talking to your father the throne room of the universe is you're an adopted son or daughter of the king who delights in you so spend some time with him okay i'm out uh remember the let's see what do we got here the planet x stuff remember the ancient alien stuff if anybody can help with the the transcribing, if anybody can help with the, the stock photos or Camtasia, um, I'd love to hear from you. Know where to run 1984 at gmail.com. Always a pleasure hanging out with you, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Know Where to Run. You can download all of the archives to this show and others I've done for free at nowheretorunradio.com. Your prayers and donations are needed and appreciated. You can partner with me to reach many more people with discipleship, apologetics, and the gospel. 
Go to Nowhere to Run Radio to help support this ministry. Thanks for your time.